Sean Rich Creek is an executive with Total Wine, and he also teaches the worlds of wine at Ollie. His expertise was honed as a boy growing up in a forest ranger's home, the tasty aromas of the wild all around him. Smell is so, so important to everything, to food, to wine, um, just to taking a walk outside. Smell is really where it all, where it all just kind of starts and emanates from. Sean Shepard is not only a student in Mr. Rich Creek's wine classes, she herself is a well-traveled food connoisseur and professional food consultant. And that all started on her family's farm in Indiana with all its bounty. I think because we had a pig barn uh, a quarter mile down the way, smell was not my primary thing. Sure, okay. That makes makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I I felt like the smell of pig barn was kind of negated all the other good ones. (laughs) Today, our two Sean's share a sparkling conversation about food and wine. Stay tuned for a delicious pairing. Welcome to In Conversation, the Voices of Ollie. Ollie, O-L-L-I, is an acronym for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute located at and networked with the Palm Desert campus of California State, San Bernardino. Smell might be the most primitive of the human senses. In fact, when it comes to food and wine, the nose is where the tasting experience begins. And so to our conversation. My dad was a forest ranger. Uh, We uh, lived at the forest ranger's residence uh, just outside of Los Angeles at the uh, Angeles National Forest in Azusa Canyon. And so my youth was filled with aroma. Whenever I walked outside, I smelled something, whether it was pine trees, whether it was honeysuckle. Um, you know, we had a huge fig tree in the yard every year. It, the, we, there were more figs than we could ever pick up. My youth was filled with the, just the sense of smell. In fact, a, a funny story is my whole life, my mom and my dad have you know, scolded me. Stop smelling your food. Just eat it. I'm one of those people. I don't care what you put in front of me. I don't care if you put a bologna sandwich with Miracle Whip on white bread in front of me. Before I go to eat it, I'm going to inhale it because to me, that's part of eating. Although, although one, of the, one of the things that I still love to do, we still love to forage. Okay. You know, go mushroom hunting and, sure. you know, find berries and do all those kinds of things. And then for a year of my childhood, my dad was really into Yule Gibbons. He was really about foraging and learning to eat from the land. And dad decided as a family experiment, we were going to go through this and we we're going to do it for a year. We were only going to eat what we grew or what we foraged. It was kind of an amazing experience. My mother, who grew up in Indianapolis, was in for about a week and a half. And then she was like, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> but to me, it's where I remember my first sense of like, Oh, the smell of like the the moisture of trees and, and, you know, when you would get down and pick that beautiful morel mushroom, like everything around it, the earth. And I think about that when I'm tasting wine or tasting something now that I really love, it has earth in it. I feel it entirely. And I love that. Certainly one of the things you teach in wine appreciation is 
you got to smell it first. You got to put your face into it, breathe it all in, get every scent you can out of it. And I love that. And when you get into the practice of doing that, now knowing what your history is, that it, you know, explains how you naturally came to that skill because you have an incredible skill set. I went uh, to school locally. I went to UC Riverside. Uh, I got invited um, by a couple of friends to go see Pink Floyd down in San Diego. And um, I had a big, if you remember those big co-pilot plastic mugs you get at a gas station. That I bought one of those, <laughs> filled it up with ice, and I said, I'm going to try wine. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm in a gas station, and I'm looking at all my options, and I decide, based on price mainly, that I'm going to buy a bottle of, of pink Gallo white Grenache. It wasn't white Zinfandel, it was white Grenache. I had beer before this, right? But this was going to be the first time wine ever passed my lips. So I remember uh, pouring uh, about, you know, probably about a third of that bottle into that big mug and just starting to sip it. And, you know, about an hour and a half later, I had polished off the whole bottle. That's literally, because remember, I'm a smeller, right? That's literally the thing that gave me the taste and smell and appreciation for wine. To this day, I remember, uh, you know, exactly what that um, experience was like. Uh, the, the, the smell of the white Grenache, a little tart, definitely sweet. Um, I remember sucking on the ice cubes after I was done drinking uh. and just thinking that that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, wine, wine's kind of cool. What I love about that is that's what wine is. It's stories. Yes. Like I, affil I affiliate a certain bottle with a, an experience, like doing amazing things. You know, I've lived in lots of different parts of the country and, and sometimes it's fancy things you do. And sometimes it's, I mean, I've, we had a great bottle of wine on the back of a horse on the ranch. <laughs> But, you know, those places, those memories, having the wine have meaning is part of the joy of it, I think. I've, I've always loved it. I, complete, I completely agree, Sean. I completely agree. The conversation turned to the regional pairing of wine and food in California and the Coachella Valley. Uh, we had a store in, uh, in Walnut Creek, which is our kind of the big uh, flagship store for, for BevMo at the time. And it was as important to some customers that they could get cowgirl creamery cheeses and then you know you start to come to understand well you know these these guys are making uh cheese locally and they're using local ingredients and they're they're really trying to um kind of just not just make cheese for the whole country they're really trying to make cheese that's made in northern california for northern californians that tastes like northern california um, and and that was one of the first times and I'd, I'd been familiar with that concept in wine that was one of the first times I'd heard about um, an American craft product by doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and what's so great is the CSA movement, which is, you know, the consumer supported agriculture where you can buy fret, just a, the box of vegetables you get fresh from the farm every single week, all those things. Terroir is in cheese, it's in milk, sure. it's in meat, it's in, it's in fruits and vegetables, like, because you taste the, the earth that it's growing from. And, and I think the more respect we all have as, as, as diners, as drinkers, for all of that, the, the, the more we'll enjoy what is, what is grown in our region. You know, I'm still fortunate to, to be working and traveling. And so like, you know, I might have lunch in Washington, D.C. and dinner in Nashville, Tennessee and blood dinner the next day in Dallas. And if you eat at farm to table restaurants, 
you really get a shocking awareness of how different food tastes in the different parts of the country. You know, and if we if we really honor the tastes of regions, it makes food so much more fun. I, I completely agree. And I, and I think that obviously that concept has been around for wine for a very long time, but I wouldn't say that concept is really well understood by the vast majority of people who consume wine in the U.S. And, and the beauty of it is let the consumer, let the customer discover it on their own after you've planted the seed. And then that concept really seems to take hold for them. They don't, they'll spend a little bit more than maybe necessarily going to a chain restaurant and having a good meal that way. Of course, as you might expect, the topic shifted to the local dining scene and their favorite restaurants. I think Lavender's, yeah, Lavender's Bistro in La Quinta is just lovely. Lovely environment, really beautifully done food, really fine wine list, some really nice cocktails as well. Um, so I, you know, kind of it tends to be a special occasion place for us. I love Cafe Beaux-Arts. Um, and that's right on El Paseo. But part of what I love about it is it's, even though it's this cute little French bistro kind of, it's like not pretentious at all. I think we have so many amazing dining options, but to be honest, I'm always way more excited when I have a weird little find on a kind of hole in the wall place. And, and uh, like we, we right now are really crazy happy with the windmill. I think it's called the windmill diner. It's on the north side of the highway outside of Palm Springs and has an incredible date shake. But they also make these amazing blue plate special lunches. And I, I swear, and it's a hole in the wall. And uh, I love it. We do have a lot of really great places to eat. I think sometimes the big names are the things that get all the attention. I think there's some really innovative dining in Palm Springs. I love the Thai restaurants here. I think we have some really good Thai food in the Valley. Uh, I agree with you on Thai food, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, as a, as a store manager trying to find a place to get lunch in under an hour in Palm Desert, you know, one of the things uh, I think a lot of people who live in Palm Desert already understand is there are no drive throughs in Palm Desert. Right. It's, an, it's a city ordinance. So my number one favorite place is uh, the Real Italian Deli. And they also have a, uh, a, a spot in, uh, in Palm Springs. And they just have, they have the best, I know sandwiches is boring, right? No, but, but their sandwiches rock. You not have a sandwich <laughs> at the real Italian deli in Palm Desert. Uh, you're you're missing out. Some of the best sandwiches. They um, also sell almond cookies there that are to yes. die. Yeah, <laughs> they absolutely, they absolutely do. Um, and then um, I've got two favorite uh, Thai restaurants, and they're kind of two different approaches to Thai. Uh, so the first is uh, uh, Le Basil, which is right next to the Smart and Final. And those are days when I maybe I take an hour and 10 minute lunch. <laughs> and then uh, just a little bit further down the street, there's uh, Blue Orchid. Their soups are amazing. And yep. then there's a really, did you ever go to the Little French? There's a Little French Bistro in uh, kind of one of those little small shopping centers um, right off of 74. It has more to go stuff than it has stuff inside. And it's, and it's really good. Like you can go in and get a, a great, pasta with bechamel sauce and you know like you can get those things pre-made which um you know it's some sometimes in the summer I was here by myself and I was like I don't want to cook you know so I I found those kinds of places too that's and, fun and the last place I'll mention 
there is a taco shop. It's in the same center as um, the real Italian deli. They make the best carne asada tacos, um, uh, you know, and, and, and any other meat that you want. So it's an authentic Mexican taqueria. But uh, you want to talk about authentic Mexican food, good, as good as it gets for me. That's uh, actually good to know. Do they have goat? Because goat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Bedia, they they absolutely yeah. have that yeah. as well. Yeah. So those those for me are places that that stand out. And then you know, you know I have um, eaten out a few times uh, in Palm Desert, the Cork Tree Restaurant over yeah. there. Uh, from, uh, uh, I think that in terms of um, you know reasonable um, menu prices and service, I think they do uh, a fantastic job. Uh, yeah, they and they have a very innovative California centric menu, which I really, really like. And that and that's owned by the Rodriguez's and they are excellent restaurateurs. And they're also the folks who have the Las Casuelas in uh, in I didn't, uh, Palm I didn't, Desert. Yes, yeah, same couple owns both of those places. And honestly, uh, what they've done with Las Casuelas in the renovation and in having a big outdoor patio. I love Las Casuelas too. I, I, I know some restaurant owners and, and I think it's hard to take a risk here because they need to virtually make all of their revenue for the year in a four to six month window. And when you have that kind of business pressure to get it right and, and get butts, you know, the old butts in the seat, right? But to get it that right for a short amount of time so you can carry the restaurant for the whole year. So some of the things that we might like to see with a, like a really amazing, and, and, and I think there are some really, like I think Willie Ryan has done some really interesting and good restaurant innovations. And, and there are some really nice things, but I think in general, restaurants, have to be successful in so short a window here that they're they play it a little safer. I did I did forget one really good Mexican restaurant though, uh, Los Pepe, uh, uh, Monterey, phenomenal uh, family owned little Mexican place. I have just have again these are all all places I can get to in an hour from a, a right. <laughs> I do say this to to customers sometimes, you know, do you always want to eat the same thing? Right. Yeah. When you, go out, when you go out to dinner, do you always order a wedge salad and a ribeye if you go to a steakhouse? Or do you occasionally get the salmon? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do, aren't you usually just thrilled that you branched out and tried something new? And I, I do think that the power of brands in uh, both wine and spirits is huge. And so I don't know if it's so much of a myth as it is, I do think there's a real opportunity on the part of consumers to you know, keep your brands, that they are good, solid choices. And if there's nothing else to choose from, you should pick them. But um, be, trust yourself a little bit to, to branch out. People do associate um, price with quality in wine. So one of the things that I do, and I usually wait until I've had um, the group with me for a few classes, is uh, we do a blind tasting. And I'll take a wine and I will pour it into a decanter. I'll do full sommelier service with the, the serviette and I'll pour it into everybody's glass. And then I'll go through and I'll ask everybody to guess and tell me how much the wine is. And, and guess what wine I use every time I do that? Gallo Hardy Burgundy. I use Gallo Hardy Burgundy <laughs> every time I do it. And Sean, what do the guesses range from? 
<laughs> oh, that when in the class we were in, that was like 49, 30, 25. And I said 899 a gallon because I, I, you know, I work with the Gallo family, so I know the Gallo wines pretty well. And and I laughed and said, that's a good trick. But I, I got it right. Yep, you did. You, you, you absolutely <laughs> did. But it's funny because in a, in a class of 15 or 20 people, the, the prices range anywhere from Sean's very correct, $8.99 a gallon, all the way up to 100 bucks. When we go to buy wine, and first of all, there's two places or two main venues. You buy wine on premise, which means at a restaurant. You buy it off premise, which means in a grocery store. And both of those can be daunting. So in a restaurant, you've got the guy that comes over, whether he's a sommelier or the wine captain or whoever. Just even if you're the most um, well-traveled, well drunk, well eaten person on the planet, somebody like Sean, there's still a little bit of an intimidation factor, right? Sure. So yeah. when they ask for your wine order, right. and so and so we tend to rely on price as well, if I order something, you know, they always say, don't don't order the most expensive thing on the restaurant wine list, don't order the cheapest thing on the restaurant wine list, and I go right in the middle. And so that's what people tend to do. Um, and then they, in a retail environment, it's different, and especially inside of a total wine, then it's just the overwhelmingness factor, right? You walk in and you need Chardonnay and all of a sudden you've got to pick from almost 800 of them. Mm -hmm. Where, where do I start? Right. So, 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 so I think trusting, um, your palate over your price is one. Yeah. I was just going to say one of the things that this made me think about is, you know, I, we belong to a number of wineries where the, the, our producers we happen to like, but inevitably there's one or two wines in their brand selection that we don't care for as much. And I, I think when you limit yourself to a brand, you, you, you are missing the opportunity for trying other things. I really, and one of the things I love about Total Wine is the opportunity to taste things. You know, you guys have some tasting. You're right, Sean. That's a good there's not no, no better than just tasting right yeah and when you taste and you taste a lot of different things which you guys are really good at putting together what happens is you start to actually get a profile of what you like you get your taste um, aligned and i i think that's a that's a fun journey as a taster <laughs> hey, sean you you eat out a lot in a fine dining um arena I'm around wine every day. There's not a month that goes by where I don't try at least 150 to 300 wines. There's, there's nothing wrong. And I think a lot of times people are so scared to fail when it comes to a food or wine choice. Oh, yeah. Those failures are some of the best teaching moments. That's how you learn what you do like. And I'll be honest with you, I've tried something and thought it was awful. And then thought about it and thought about it and tried it again a couple, couple months later. And now that I understand, okay, you know, the point of this wine is not to taste good by itself. The point of this wine is to make oysters taste a little better. Mm. Um, it's kind of like people. Not everybody likes me when they meet me, right? <laughs> right? That's it, not true. Sometimes it takes getting to know me a little bit. Well, my wife will vouch. It's, it's true for her. She, when we first met, she did not want to date me. It, took, it definitely took some time for her to, uh, to warm up to me. I think if you'd not had paper cups for the nice wine. <laughs> Sean Shepard and Sean Rich Creek, two spirited voices and refined palates of Ollie. 
So our very best friends in this valley have been made through Ollie. And I think it's because uh, it, it attracts people who want to continue to learn and brighten their lives because they're learning new things, irrespective of age. I'm so grateful for the program for all of that. Okay. I've never had a more challenging group of students, a more well-traveled, a more well-read, a more educated, and a more engaged group of students. And I'll be honest with you, I've got, I've still got kids in, in high school and college and I got a pretty busy job. I haven't had the opportunity to take an Ollie course as a member. And I've looked at the, the level of person that you guys have offering classes because I don't, I don't have the, those kind of credentials. It really um, just makes me feel good to be a part of it because it's a great organization. And I can't think of a better way to describe yourself um, uh, than as somebody who wants to keep learning. Yeah. This has been In Conversation, the Voices of Ollie. Our thanks to Cal State San Bernardino in Palm Desert, along with Communications Study Professor Lacey Kendall and her media students. This podcast was produced for Ollie by Lou Gorfing. And I am Dr. Arlette Poland. 